eavesdropping is welcome on the desert's best conversations with Charlie Dyer. In this country's first two centuries, only three cases brought before the U.S. Supreme Court required an interpretation of the Second Amendment. But over the three decades since, few debates have proven so persistent and so polarizing. On one end of the issue are those who believe that the Second Amendment champions unfettered access to and use of whatever firearms one chooses. On the other are those who believe our founding document ties gun ownership to participation in a militia and thereby argue it's lawful for government to limit firearms in any way it sees fit. But our guest today argues that both sides are misunderstanding the intentions of the founding fathers. Thank you so much for being here today, Jonathan Hennessy, on uh, Conversations with Charlie Dyer on iHub Radio. Charlie, it's a, uh, it's a great pleasure. Thank you for having me on. Well, Jonathan is here to talk about his new documentary, You Don't Understand the Second Amendment. In addition to filmmaking, Jonathan is the author of several books addressing American history, including The United States Constitution, A Graphic Adaptation, Alexander Hamilton, The Graphic History of an American Founding Father, and The Gettysburg Address, A Graphic Adaptation, as well as the New York Times bestselling The Comic Book Story of Beer. Seems like there's a running theme there with graphics. Check out uh, his website for the documentary, understandthesecondamendment.com. Well, you made this new documentary on your own dime and are inviting people to watch it for free online. So talk about what motivated you, Jonathan, to take on this project with not very many benefits for yourself, it seems. My project is all about empowering people to have much more informed conversations about the Second Amendment. Because as you well know, Charlie, and anybody in your audience knows, this whole gun debate is putting a lot of stress on uh, certainly a lot of individuals, victims of, of gun violence and so on. But it's really putting stress on our whole society. And uh, I think in a way it's it's been designed to do that. It's sort of happening on purpose. So what I'm doing is, uh, again, I've made it, it's a feature length documentary. It is absolutely free for anyone to watch. There's nothing to download. There's nothing to register for. It's just out there to stream, absolutely free and to share. So what I've done is taken all the tools um, from history and constitutional law that people need to actually understand what the Second Amendment is all about and made them, you know, freely available for, for all people. Um, the, what I'm really trying to get across is the, the sort of gun extremists and the gun lobby has been incredibly successful over the past couple of generations reframing the gun debate and pushing what their narrative about the Second Amendment is. And they've actually been so successful that both sides – including progressive liberals, you know, people in people in favor of com just common sense gun laws, the, even people in that, you know, sector of society have essentially swallowed whole the idea of what the Second Amendment means and what they've swallowed whole is the NRA's idea. Well, well, so people from both people from the more liberal side have aren't looking at the Second Amendment. They, they think they understand what it is, and they, and they don't. What they don't understand is in the actual history of the Second Amendment and how firearms were treated, there are so many positive things for the common sense gun crowd to, to reintroduce to American society in a 
manner of constitutional literacy. And they can get so much more done if they would just embrace actually looking at it. Well, this country's all too frequent mass shootings are followed by, you say, a really predictable, almost scripted wave of responses. So talk about those responses and and why they fall short of action that might actually help prevent future shootings. Yeah, Charlie. So, you know, anybody, you and anybody who's listening, we've already been through these, this cycle so many times when there is, you know, unfortunately, constitutional literacy in this country is always kind of, I'm not just, I'm not just bashing our present moment. It's, it's, it's usually this way. If, if things are going well, people don't pay a lot of attention to the constitution. And usually when, you know, the, the broad mass mass society of America, when we are actually paying attention to the Second Amendment, Second Amendment, it's usually only after one of these mass shootings. And, you know, when that happens, it's very predictable The you know, we get these thoughts and prayers shares on social media. We get people saying it's too soon to, you know, to tackle this problem. And, uh, you know, from the from the from the sort of common sense gun law arena, we we get a lot of people saying this is, you know, enough. What can we do? There are marches. And then, you know, things go on for a little while and then inevitably something else comes up in the news cycle and it sort of gets all the toys get put away just to be to be brought out again. And the reason this keeps happening in this fashion is is again because people don't understand the second amendment and they don't understand that uh that there are the tools of history and constitutional law can actually be used, you know, uh against what the gun lobby keeps pushing on us. Well, the Second Amendment is unlike any other in the Bill of Rights, so briefly talk about how it came to be. It's a great question, Charlie, and it's also a big story, so I will try to thumbnail it. Um, generally speaking, we credit James Madison, who was you know, the man who became our fourth president eventually, with creating the Constitution. Um, it, was, it was very much his project. A lot of his ideas went, in, went into it. So James Madison, once the Constitution was written, he had, uh, the, uh, the, first of all, it had to be accepted by all the states. So James Madison was very active in getting the, con- not only writing the Constitution, but getting it accepted from enough states to make it the law of the land. But there were a small number of very vocal people who we now remember as anti-federalists, is what you've learned, the, the term that you use in your high school American history class, who wanted changes to the constitution and they want most of these guys wanted really big structural changes so there was pressure on madison to change the very document that he had done so much to write and done so much to to make the law of the land and madison who also drafted what became the second amendment and became the first 10 amendments he didn't want to amend the constitution he didn't he he actually called the whole process of amending the constitution a nauseous project and when he did finally decide on some things that he would offer as amendments he called them conciliatory sacrifices to you know this small vocal crowd of kind of who he considered troublemakers so james madison among many other things was kind of a consummate politician and one of the moves that you know that politicians sort of offer tends to be kind of a uh, uh, 
something that you might call a, a bait and switch maneuver. So the amendments that Madison ultimately offered were amendments that did not make any big structural changes to American society. They were on things like freedom of speech, freedom of religion, freedom of the press, um, the takings clause, pretty much everything in there would have been, it wasn't in black and white in the constitution, but these were not controversial things that were reinventing the constitution from the bottom up. So when he offered them, it was kind of a, an effort to make it seem like he was amending the constitution, but actually doing it as little as possible. And that's what I, what I mean by the second amendment being a uncontroversial thing for so much of our history and the controversy really coming about very recently, broadly speaking, in the you know 220 odd history of our republic. Well, we tend to frame the gun use argument as, you know, an either or, either an individual or a military context. But you argue it's not an either or question. So what is it? The way that the legal scholars and the media and so forth have debated the, the Second Amendment in more recent times, they have talked about how it's either, you know, this is either about the, the right of states to have an armed militia and then the individuals would only be uh, exercising their Second Amendment protections to, to use a firearm in when they're act, actually actually serving in a militia. So that's what you know some legal scholars have styled the collective right. And other people tend to you know in the, in the other side of the debate is no, this is about you, me, and everyone having access to firearms, not just to protect ourselves and to protect property, but to be armed so we can fight the federal government. If the federal government somehow becomes a you know runaway tyrannical entity, and so people's tended people in more recent debate talk about the Second Amendment like it's either a collective right or an individual right, but it's but it's really both. It is very much about the militia. Um, I believe that you know there is an individual right for responsible adult citizens to use some sorts of firearms for some sorts of legal purposes, and I think that has almost nothing to do with the Second Amendment itself. The Second Amendment really is about the militia, but you can't have you can't have a functioning militia um, without people who have some kind of grounding, uh, some kind of literacy in how to use a firearm, how to shoot how to maintain a weapon. So the, the, the skills of the, the basic skills of riflery are kind of the foundation on which malicious service is, is, is grounded. The, the real difference and where the second amendment, where, where we people talk of the way people talk about it today, where we get in trouble is thinking that what it guarantees is that individuals should have these high grade military weapons to fight the government because Every aspect of that argument is totally historically unsupportable and really absurd. Private citizens of the founding era did not own a certain class of weapons, namely artillery. So why not? How, how does an 18th century cannon compare with a semi-automatic rifle of today, Jonathan? So we take the men of the 1780s, 1790s, the men who were participating in government at one level or another, and we can know that many of these men, if not you know, virtually all of them, did own and use firearms. And, and we know this from because there's a paper trail. There are estate inventories and there are probate records. We, we know many of the things that these people owned and what they did with their time and what their possessions were. So firearms were among them. 
But what we're talking about is the kind of class of weapons that individuals would use, again, to protect their own lives and to protect their property. So we're talking about, you know, basically single action handguns, shotguns and rifles, um, things. And, and again, these are weapons that are useful to a certain extent in war, but war was not really fought with in, in important ways with these weapons and with, with these weapons alone. So, you know, even in the 1700s, early 1800s, and we know this from the Napoleonic Wars, the American War for Independence, the French and Indian War, you couldn't really have an effective military response in this era when the Constitution was framed and the Second Amendment came about. You couldn't have an effective military militia response without artillery weapons. So we're talking cannon, mortars, and howitzers. Things like that. Those were ex extremely important weapons to this generation as, as well as in warfare today. And we know from these same historical records that individuals were not keeping cannons and howitzers and mortars to protect themselves or to, to fight the federal government. And why this is so important and so interesting is because we can empirically prove that the kind of weapons that were used in mass shootings like, like in Las Vegas, Sandy Hook, other places like that, these weapons like the AR-15 style weapons, what a lot of people call assault weapons, which is a whole loaded term that you know the, the gun extremists really hate for people like us to talk about. But those weapons like the AR-15s are actually provably more deadly than the artillery weapons that we know the founding fathers did not keep and bear on an individual basis. Those were, those were so powerful and so deadly that they were considered weapons of war that would only be used in a militia and military context. And when they weren't being used, if the, when the militia was actually called up or when there was a state of war existing, weapons that were as powerful as the as today's AR-15s were locked up in in state arsenals and under lock and key of government workers like uh, uh, arsenal keepers and gunpowder receivers. There really is a strong basis for regulating those very dangerous weapons, which were never used by the founding fathers as individuals. Well, the militias of the founding era retained the rights to decide who could be members and who could be excluded. Why is that important to this debate, Jonathan? Charlie, if there was if there was one thing I could possibly you know ha leave your audience to consider, uh, another thing that the gun extremists like to tell us is that you know government has no has no business deciding who does and who doesn't get to use a firearm. But the language of the Second Amendment itself tells us that government choosing who is responsible enough to use firearms and, and who is not is actually baked in to the language of this part of the Constitution itself. So it's a little, it's a little tricky to understand, but it just takes a minute to think about it. Um, the Second Amendment says, uh, you know, a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, uh, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. So the word people here is what we need to think about. The way that we use the word people today, we're, when we use the word people, we're really talking, we're imagining everyone. But this is not the case in at the time the Second Amendment was and the Constitution were ratified and became law of the land. We all know that you know, the first three words of the Constitution mean we the people. 
the people and, and, you know, now we don't like to think of America as being a society with second classes and with some people who barely qualified as, as citizens at all or didn't qualify as citizens at all. But when the Constitution first came into being and for many generations afterwards, that was true. So the, the, the people, people in the Constitution means those who are empowered with political rights. And by political rights, I mean the right to vote, the right to participate in government, like to serve uh, in political office, the right to serve on a jury, and the right to be in the militia. And we know that this that the, the falling under the umbrella of the people were mostly only white male property owners. So, so women indigents, prisoners, uh, Indians, slaves, free African-Americans that existed at the time, these people did not have political rights. So when we talk about the right of the people to keep and bear arms, this is already government deciding who is and who, do who, is and who isn't a member of the, of the people. So the founding fathers really did have you know they were they were weighted down by their own prejudices and the and the characteristic uh, biases of the of the day, but they did they were pursuing what they felt was was a very common sense uh, approach to who should have firearms and who should not. So when we talk about the rights of the people, that does not mean that the rights even to keep a, a, a firearm for individual use does not mean everyone. Three cases requiring an interpretation of the Second Amendment have been taken up by the Supreme Court in our first 200 years, and reaching back to the founding period, only three of the 13 states actually wanted an amendment to the Constitution articulating that right to bear arms. So talk about what happened more recently that made this issue such a flashpoint, Jonathan. My documentary doesn't really get into the more recent history and it's something that I continue to learn about and continue to, to process. But one you know one thing is very clear that um, something sort of happened between in the uh, the 60s and 70s with you know we have a unfortunately in America we have uh, we have a, a very violent history. We have a history of you know treating many classes of individuals like they're second class people. So we we've had a, you know a lot of ups and downs in terms of justice and domestic tranquility. But there's there's no question that the 60s and the 70s, with uh, you know the pushback against the civil rights movement, the Vietnam War, Watergate, and all kinds of things that were kind of you know, serve to increase suspicion of the government and of government institutions. A lot of that was going on then. And that is when the gun lobby really started to change its tune and change its mission. Um, we all need to remember that groups like the NRA, I mean, these people are gun lobbyists. They are, it is their job to sell firearms for the, you know, the firearm manufacturing sector. And they will say and do anything that it's legal for them to say and do, even if it's not true, they will say anything that's legal for them to say in order to push that agenda of, of uh, selling firearms. And, and in the 60s and 70s and, and, and from there, they're, they're going forward, they sort of jumped on this uh, feeling in the land that government institutions were not serving the people and that there were uh, racial tension and other sorts of tension in society and that individuals suddenly felt like they needed to be 
you know, armed with a diff- for different purposes and a, with a different grade of weapons than that people had for many generations just to, you know, protect themselves, protect their property, especially rural property, and go hunting. A ban on assault weapons is completely consistent, you say, with the Founding Fathers' intentions for the Second Amendment. Why do you tell people not to make Washington, D.C. their first stop to put a ban in place? So we, we sort of established earlier that the kind of weapons that that are street legal now, like these AR-15s, are actually more powerful than even the military-grade weapons that the founding fathers used. So, the, so the basis for regulating them, in, in, in even what you know you call a originalist approach to constitutional interpretation, which is the NRA's favorite way of looking at the Constitution, the the basis for regulating them is already there. Here's the thing: we have not only our federal constitution, you know, the, the James Madison's written in 1787, that's that's the constitution for our union. But we all also have 50 state constitutions and the state constitutions. And this is a lot of this is coming up right now in the in the pandemic times with the role of, of the governors, uh, whether they're going to open open the economies, so-called, you know, or not. The, the governors were always meant to have a lot of a lot of power within their own states and within their own sphere of influence. And every state constitution in in at the time the Second Amendment was made the law of the land right up through to today, every state constitution says the governor, the elected civilian governor, is the commander in chief of the state's militia. Remember, being part of the militia means that you're part of a chain of command. You're not just uh, an individual picking up arms and deciding when to use deadly force or not. You're responsible and accountable to a chain of command with the governor at the top. So I don't see any reason, you know, given the amount of the, the amount of power over I'd, over things like this that governors were intended to have by the founding fathers. I don't see any reason why any governor can't pick up her pen or his pen and institute an assault weapons ban in her state because she has, as the commander-in-chief of the militia, she has the power to decide what what firearms the militia needs to have access to when it's not called up into militia service. Jonathan Hennessy is our guest today on Conversations with Charlie Dyer on iHub Radio. The new documentary is You Don't Understand the Second Amendment. You can watch it for free right now online. Go to the website understandthesecondamendment.com. Thanks so much for being here today. It's been great, Charlie. Thank you so much for your time.